session is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. In this week's episode, Nothing is Secure's Roy Natian is back to remind us about what social media is actually for. Social media exists to sell ads. The truth, accuracy of the news, your well-being, these are all secondary to selling ads. And in the later part of the show, Leilani Albano is joined by Haley Sukayama, a legislative activist for the EFF. And they talk about the California Consumer Privacy Act and efforts to implement mass testing and contact tracing for the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. But first, Joanna Miller gives us a view from the outside. Hello, I'm Joanna Miller, and this is A View from the Outside, a segment that explores diverse voices in technology. Today, my guest is Casper Turkile. Casper, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm the author of The Power of Ritual and a co-founder of the Sacred Design Lab, which thinks about the future of community and spirituality in the United States. Why did you frame your book around ritual? So the whole book is really structured about helping us think about what are the everyday things that I do? What are the habits of working out, of eating, of reading, of resting? And when we add some ancient wisdom to them, we can actually transform those daily habits into what I call a spiritual practice, into a ritual that's oriented around meaning and connection. What I was really struck by in the introduction to your book is that you describe it as a paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. Um, fundamentally rethinking what it means for something to be sacred and really elevating the daily activities that we're invested Mm -hmm. in to a sacred place. One of the things that's a fact of modern life is that we all rely on technology to facilitate that modern life. What have you discovered in your research or even in your own personal experience around how technology shapes how we can create ritual? Well, I want to say two things about that. The first is that, of course, that paradigm shift is itself shaped by our new technologies. When you think about the language we use, I'm I'm processing this thought, or let me just download this idea. Those are tech words that have have come into our life way beyond the the initial use of it. Well, the same is with how technology is shaping our spiritual lives. One big trend at the moment is that people are very hesitant about the very kind of top-down nature of religious institutions. And so if you think about how the internet introduced for many people this idea of networks. The same is true in our spiritual lives. We're much more likely to think of ourselves as affiliating with another person than we are to affiliate with an institution. Part two is to look at how people are actually practicing their spirituality. And the first thing is to say that more and more of us are using tech tools for our spiritual life, whether that's uh, something like Insight Meditation Timer or the Calm app or the Headspace app, whether we're using tarot decks on our phone, there's more and more products that are there to help us with our spiritual life. The shadow side of that is that as we rely more and more (laughs) and uh, perhaps are addicted to, especially our phones, I think there's a real invitation for us to think about what can we learn from ancient traditions about how to intelligently engage with technology? And for me personally, one of the rituals that's been most important has been to practice a tech Sabbath. And you hear about this a lot, right? The digital detoxes, the adult summer camps where technology is not allowed. But the reason why I really love that word Sabbath is that instead of thinking about a time when we turn off our phones as as a rest from technology or a pause so that we can press play again, the Sabbath really inverts that idea. And it says, no, the Sabbath 
is the apex of the week. The, the work week is preparation for the Sabbath. And indeed, in, in Jewish teaching, the Sabbath time is a time for, for all sorts of delights, uh, including uh, a religious law of lovemaking. It's really huh. about enjoying the most of what life has to offer us. What else are you seeing? It's really interesting to think about how sacred spaces are going to be built online. And we're only just at the beginning. Of course, we're, we're, we're using tools like Zoom, which are built for business and trying to adapt it for spirituality. I think the next you know, six to 12 months, we're going to see an explosion of new technologies that actually are designed for people to, to sing together, to feel like they're in community. What are some potential technologies that could be developed that really bridge that gap between creating um, an in-person spiritual experience and a digital one? I'm so curious about what we'll see in VR, because I think one of the opportunities that is really there is a very immersive experience, especially if we think about places that we're already going to, to feel connected to something bigger, like nature, for example. You can imagine we can't all fit into the Sistine Chapel in person, but we could all be there uh, in a liturgical moment, by which I mean there's a ceremony happening. Maybe there's there's music, there's, there's light, there's uh, perhaps we can even integrate smell. If you burn incense at home, and then you have a VR headset. I, I, th I think there's some really exciting opportunities there. And you're already starting to see, just using kind of online video, little invitations for people to be present with one another. I just saw something recently where there's an invitation to log on and, and be connected in a sort of chat roulette style with a stranger and just look into their eyes for a minute in total silence as a way of kind of grounding presence and connection. So who knows where, where this will go? I think that the danger for especially traditional rituals or institutions is that the bias is always to to just do what we did before, but like do it online. And the mm -hmm. invitation here, I think, is to go, no, what was what were the kind of design principles that were underneath that ritual? And how can we express those with these new technologies? And this is theologically grounded. The great Trappist monk of the 20th century, Thomas Merton, identifies this difference between tradition and convention. Usually when we use the word tradition, we mean old things, the, the way things were usually done. But Merton invites us to use the word convention for that. It's the outer shell, the thing we recognize, the way that we do things. And he says, no, tradition is the thing that lives inside convention. It's the flame. It's the beating heart. That's the eternal bit. The way that we express that is always historically and culturally contextual. So our job is to look at what sits underneath the rituals that maybe we grew up with or that we can still see around us and find a way to translate that that feels current and, and useful and relevant and powerful today. I love this concept of design principles around ritual and how we experience uh, these collective moments of spirituality. If you are giving advice to product managers, yeah. UX designers, what are some of the design principles or maybe teaching from traditional sources that they should be considering when developing tools for the space? This is like my favorite question <laughs> because what it what it invites us to do is to learn about these old traditions and and find all of this wisdom and goodness that that lives within them. The potential is huge. As Sacred Design Lab, we worked recently uh, with a large social media company. We were working with a group of, of engineers and, and product managers, and uh, they said, well, we're the technologists, but you're the ancient technologists. We know we want people to feel gratitude, or we know we want people to feel awe, or we know we want people to feel generous. What are the practices in these different religious traditions that did that, and how can we, how can we learn from them? The way I structure the book is to think about different levels of connection. 
usually when we think about connection, it's about one person to another. But the experience of belonging is much more multifaceted. So I, I break the book up into thinking about connecting to yourself, connecting with other people, connecting with the natural world, and then connecting with transcendence, this idea of being part of something bigger. And there are so many ways in which we fulfill those different kind of design needs. We eat together, we might look up at the night sky, we might tell stories about family members or, or ancestors. There's so many ways in which we, we kind of fulfill those different levels of connection. The opportunities are endless. And it, it's really an invitation. Once you realize that one of the reasons why people are engaging with your product is fulfilling the needs that maybe they used to find in religion, it really expands your imagination for what's possible. So many of us have moved our rituals into the digital space due to social distancing. Is there anything that you've seen that you really think needs to remain in the physical space? Uh, there's no doubt there are losses, but there are other things that when we lean into the capacities of the technologies that are, that are wonderful. One, obviously, is that people who previously would have been excluded, maybe because they were far away or, or maybe because of a, a chronic illness or a disability, who, who couldn't, couldn't participate in something, are now able to participate fully. I've seen some really interesting trends. So often we, we think about orienting everything in a video call around the camera, looking at the screen, looking at each other on those little grids. But there's been some really interesting ways in which people have been hosting dance parties without their cameras on, for example. You're still feeling like you're connected as you're doing a five rhythms class at distance. Or even doing a wedding with breakout groups and the wedding couple moving from one breakout group to another, kind of like a reception line. One of the, my biggest passions uh, when, when thinking about designing for community is small groups. And I think we're seeing more and more small groups starting up. And one of the things about doing it online is people are willing to risk participation more, I think, because you're not having to go to a strange building to meet strange people to do something new. You're staying at home in a safe place and trying something new. So, so your capacity for risk is actually bigger. What's one wish that you have for technology in the future? I think one challenge in the tech spaces that I've been in is that a lot of folks feel like we're doing this for the first time or we're really at the front edge of something. And of course, on a technological level, that is true. But on a human level, these questions of, of what we yearn for, how we want to be, how we want to grow, those are age old. And so there is such wisdom in these traditions when we can approach them maybe as, as spiritual designers or as ancient technologists. There's so much wisdom that we can learn from them. And so not to just leave them behind, but to delve into them and to, and to transform and translate those insights into the new products that, that we're building or using today. That, I think that's my, my biggest wish. Thank you so much. Casper's book, The Power of Ritual, Turning Everyday Activities into Soulful Practices, will be out wherever books are sold on June 23rd. I'm Joanna Miller, your host. Until next time. Thanks, Joanna, for giving us a view from the outside. We are living in a time of ample access to information, but the problem is a lot of this information is inaccurate, and in some cases, it's designed to be that way. I'm joined by Nothing is Secure's Roy Natian to talk about this, and in particular, social media. Social media is not a good place to get the news. Someone's tweet commenting on a news link is not news. The actual news article is news. And then even then you might not be able to trust that article, but at least know that social media is not news. Social media exists to sell ads. The truth, accuracy, 
of the news, your well-being, these are all secondary to selling ads. Social media is designed to grab your attention and keep it for as long as possible so that you may see another ad. One way to circumvent this disinformation is don't use social media, but that's not really realistic for many people. At least keep that in mind that social media sells ads. Right. Social media is not news. But what about news articles that are posted? However, people do post news articles on social media, and you shouldn't take the title of news articles as the news either, right? Actually read the article. But even then, news articles, especially stuff written on scientific topics, a lot of the reporting I've seen on coronavirus summarizes research papers, but the summary doesn't actually reflect what the actual gist of the research paper is, or the the title of the article doesn't actually give you all the details necessary. Reality is way more complex than a news article. So it always helps to actually not just read the news article, but actually go to the source, especially for news on medicine and science. Find the original journal article. Related to going to the sources, do some research. We live in this wonderful time when search engines can find things for us in the blink of an eye and research maybe opposing views of things that are posted online. One of the things I do, for example, when it comes to medical news, I go ahead and type in the topic and then the word skeptic after it, right? So if someone posts something about acupuncture, I search acupuncture skeptic, and then there are a bunch of websites that actually analyze topics and then will give you an opposing point of view or or a science-based point of view. So try to do more research, try to find opposing sources of information that might give you another point of view. Our brains are lazy. It's not a bad thing. It's just the way our brains work. Our brains want to conserve energy as much as possible. So we love a good soundbite. We love a short, cleanly packaged story that just tells us how things are. And that's that. Reality is messier. Reality is way more complex. So if you see soundbites, don't automatically take them to be truth. Find the source. Do research. Those things have always helped me try to determine if things are real or not. Yes. Verify. Another important thing to consider is statistics. If you ever see statistics thrown at you, a couple things. First of all, verify the statistic is true. Find the source, verify the statistic is true. And then on top of that, if there are numbers thrown at you, do some math to see if whatever number has been given to you actually matches with the research, with the statistics. Yes, statistics can be misinterpreted easily. We've seen a lot of this in the quote unquote rights response to the recent Black Lives Matter protests. Yes, I've seen a fact thrown as a counter. The fact is that more white people are shot and killed by the police than black people. And it turns out this fact is true. However, by itself, this fact is misleading. You have to see this fact in context. If you look at the census statistics, there are about 5.8 times as many white people than black people. So it means you'd expect that there would be about a sixth of this number would be the number of black people shot and killed by the police. If you look at the numbers, so it's 370 white people shot and killed by the police in 2019. There are about 5.8 times more white people than black people. So all things equal, you'd expect that there would only be 63 black people shot and killed by the police. Turns out there's 235 black people in 2019 were shot and killed by the police. Right. That's over three and a half times the rate of white people. So while that fact was true, and I've seen it posted many times, in context, it actually turns out black people are killed more often. The only reason why the number is higher is that there's just way more white people in the U.S. than black people. So you have to watch out for numbers thrown at you. You have to go to the source and you have to see the numbers in context. When it comes to statistics, you want to meld the story with the data. And some people are really good at bending the data to their will and trying to create their own story that suits their needs. So you have to watch out for that. 
so with this information, there are a couple things. One is what's the information being fed to you and how do you verify it? So there are a couple things. One is don't mistake social media to be the news. It's not. It's there to sell you ads. Be wary of what's posted on social media. Do your research and take more social media breaks. It's pretty exhausting having to deal with all this misinformation all the time. One thing you can do that's really useful to filter noise out is follow real people and use Twitter filters to filter out key terms that are divisive or involve politics or Trump, basically. I've done that in my feed so much better. That was Roy Natian reminding us that we cannot trust a lot of what we see on the internet and how really it's important to fact check. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village here on 90.7 FM KPFK. In the last part of the show... As California Governor Gavin Newsom ramps up efforts to provide mass testing and contact tracing, activists are demanding that his response to the COVID-19 crisis not trample people's rights to privacy. The California Consumer Privacy Act, or CCPA, which begins its enforcement stage on July 1st, was designed to ensure users' online privacy and consumer protection rights. But critics of the California law say that Newsom can do more to ensure that data privacy from coronavirus testing is protected. Haley Skayama, legislative activist with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, spoke with Digital Village's contributing reporter, Leilani Albano. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Some may see the push for digital privacy during a pandemic as being ill-timed. Shouldn't we be prioritizing our health over privacy? I think this choice that people are being offered between protecting privacy and protecting public health is really a false choice. I think a lot of the efforts that are being put forward in terms of pulling together and trying to do what's best for public health really rely on buy-in from the public, and that requires a great level of trust. And I think privacy is really important to building that trust. To fight COVID, California Governor Gavin Newsom has been emphasizing mass testing and contact tracing. In light of this, Senate Judiciary Chair Hannah Beth Jackson has called for assurances from the governor that tech programs protect our privacy. What's the fear? In terms of data collection by governments and data collection by private companies who may be working with governments, there is a history there of that information being used for purposes other than how they consented it to be collected. And so I think what Senator Jackson is hitting on in her letter, and Senator Jackson's been a a great privacy champion in the California legislature, she's saying as you embark on these big programs, particularly if you are a government that's partnering with a company, we want to be really clear about how that information is collected, how that information is used to make sure that, for example, companies can't use it for advertising purposes down the line, that they're really protecting it. This is really sensitive information that the government is looking at collecting and working with companies to collect more efficiently. We really need to be careful that that information is both protected from a cybersecurity standpoint and protected from a privacy standpoint. Right. And we've seen this with private companies repurposing people's information. For example, 
example, with Cambridge Analytica, the company using data from Facebook, if you take a quiz and then suddenly you're helping them campaign for a presidential election. Absolutely. There's a real bankruptcy of trust between regular consumers and companies in particular, right? For good reason. You mentioned an example. There was a FTC, Federal Trade Commission case about a flashlight app so that could you use your phone as a flashlight, but it was collecting all kinds of information about you. So we would want to be really careful when we're looking at dealing with this pandemic and response to it that we don't take this moment of fear and uncertainty and use it to expand those banks of data that are being collected about people. And it's not only the information that they are collecting and various ways that they may be using it and reusing it. Isn't it a question of how long they'll be using that information? Absolutely. You raise a really good point. Certainly when we look at legislation in this space, um, we always want to know how long companies are retaining data. For example, if you're looking at if someone is infected or not, that is a status that changes over time. You want to be really sure that if that information is accurate, that companies don't hold on to it forever. I think you also, as a matter of trust, you want to say, okay, well, maybe I'll let you collect this information and keep it for as long as you need it. But once you don't need it anymore, why do you still need to hang on to my address. Newsom has been in talks with Google and Apple over developing contact tracing technology. What kind of privacy safeguards are they proposing and are they enough? Yeah, so I think Google and Apple in many ways have the right idea. They're introducing a model that is called the decentralized model, meaning that could imagine a system where you're collecting information, where everything feeds into one big bucket. And the problem with feeding into one big bucket is, first of all, that someone has to protect that big bucket of information, and also that it's much harder to assure individual privacy in a context like that. And so what Google and Apple are doing with their contact tracing platform is they're leaving that information on people's devices. So it's decentralized. Everybody has their own bucket and they they can choose to upload that as they see fit. But is it enough? Do we know where the information is going to if it's going to be used by other companies? That's a great question. Governor Newsom's proposals have not been fully explained, I think, in a way that is satisfactory to a lot of privacy advocates. I think certainly in Senator Hannah Beth Jackson's letter, she asked for more information as well. Certainly, we would want to see more information about where that data is coming from, who it's going to, how long it's being retained. As people implement Google and Apple's platform, there are certainly ground rules that we'd like to see them abide by. How does Dragnet surveillance work? And tell us some of the challenges. Dragnet surveillance, it's the type of term we use when we're talking about that indiscriminate surveillance with face surveillance or when you're just deploying these surveillance technologies without real thought as to who might get swept up in it or without having to provide a reason. And I think we're talking about challenges, certainly from a privacy and civil liberties context. That's just not how we function in this country. We have a constitution. We have a healthy respect for people's freedom to behave in the ways that they want, to say what they want, to associate with who they want. And when you talk about dragnet surveillance, to sweep everybody up in that without reason is itself not great in terms of how America runs, how the rule of law works here. And then also, when you look at dragnet surveillance, it's often deployed in communities that already 
are over police or it's often used as a tool to target minority populations. And so that data collection is used as a tool to exacerbate a lot of the inequity that we see in society. And not only that, if you are going to be going to a political protest or a religious location, you're revealing a lot about the people within that dragnet. Absolutely. Those two things you just said, those are both protected by the First Amendment. To use surveillance to collect that information, depending on who gets that information, it could be manipulated, it could be taken out of context. There are a lot of ways that dragnet surveillance is very damaging and it has what they call a chilling effect, makes people less willing to express themselves. California has passed one of the strongest internet privacy laws in the country, the California Consumer Privacy Act, or CCPA. And yet some are concerned that it will not address the problems that we may face with coronavirus testing. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I certainly agree with those concerns. I am a big proponent of the CCPA. We worked very hard to defend it from amendments that would have weakened it. But it is a first step. CCPA, generally speaking, addresses data that's already been collected. It gives you right to say to a company, you have information on me, I would like to know what that information is, or I would like to know who you shared it with, or I would like you to delete it. Those are the basic rights of CCPA. But there isn't a lot about collection. And I think when we're talking about contact tracing and responses to the COVID crisis, a lot of that is about collection. And the assurances that we'd like to see and that other places around the world, particularly in Europe, they have talked about what they call data minimization, which is a fancy word for saying before you collect the information, you have to tell me why you want it. You have to explain how you'll use it and you have to promise that you won't use it for other things. And those are the sorts of protections that aren't in the CCPA or really in U.S. law that we would like to see. That was Electronic Frontier Foundation's legislative activist, Haley Skyama, speaking with Digital Village contributing reporter Leilani Elbano. Some good tech-related news, both Microsoft and Amazon have halted the use of their facial recognition software by police. We have to keep the pressure on. That's it for Digital Village. We'll get through this. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In a Quantum World. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org. Click audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can also follow us on all things social using at Digital V Radio or at digitalvillage.org. A special thank you to A View from the Outsides, Joanna Miller, Nothing is Secure's Roy Natian, and Leilani Albano. KPFK needs your support now more than ever, and you can donate now to keep glorious, independent, listener-sponsored radio going here at KPFK. Just go to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen, and we'll, we'll see, see you online. online.